This is For the Love of the Game, hosted by old school college soccer coaches Ralph Perez and Ray Reed. Between these two, you're listening to 81 years of coaching college athletes, nearly 900 career wins, five national championships, and approximately 17,546 names in their contact lists. On this podcast, they grab some of those names and talk about what's going on in the soccer world today. Here they are, Ralph and Ray. All right, Ralph, you ready? We're going to talk to Carly in a few minutes, but let's start with this. Carly's been in the news lately saying U.S. women's soccer team culture was toxic. She's been getting a lot of backlash for it. So for your teams, how do you think about team culture? Well, I think that uh, that's a a massive uh, concern for every coach that goes into that whole coaching psychology, you know, keeping your players happy, keeping them motivated, uh, especially the ones that are not playing. You know, maybe someone was a starter and now they're not. So it's a real, real thing there. And obviously with our women's national team, uh, the present coach, inherited a team where some of the stars and just like Carly was the MVP of a world cup. And now she's not starting every game and she's coming off the bench and they're telling her that her role is going to be different than it was in the last world cup run. So it's, it's getting someone to buy in to the role that now you've designated they're going to play in the team. And as you know, Ray, those, those are tough things to deal with. And, um, you know, and to keep it right because players are always looking for someone to agree with them if they're getting the short end of something or they're lost playing time. Yeah, I think, the, you know, obviously culture is the, the big buzzword now in society, whether it's in corporate America, whether it's in the military, whether it's on a sports team. I think culture is, is uh, something that's established over time, but it's also established by who you bring into your program. And I think the biggest challenge, certainly at the collegiate level, was dealing with one or two student athletes in a in a team who could really severely affect the culture. You know, we spent long hours at UConn trying to weed these guys out. It's not easy. It's also not as easy to remove a player from the team as it used to be. It used to be the coach's decision. You know, now you know it's not so cut and dry that you can just ask a kid not to be part of your team anymore. So I think more and more it's it's, it's become about culture and mentality and chemistry and less about tactics and less about technical quality to a certain degree. And it's about getting everybody somewhat on the same page and seeing things somewhat the same way and being able to coexist. Well, you know, just to go a step further because of Carly's position, she's playing for the national team, you know, the national coach, a new coach comes in just like when a coach gets fired and a new coach comes into a collegiate scene, it's a different approach, a different way of doing business. Every coach has his own personality, his own style. And, uh, you know, at the national level, sometimes uh, getting dropped from the team, you're not called back in or in the professional level. You know, if you have a player that you think is uh, a cancer on your team, you're going to, you know, cut that out and maybe make a trade. We see this all the time in the professional game. It might be a real top level player, and then you're willing to send that player away, be a trade or just even cut him and cut your losses. Uh, I know that Italy right now, for example, in these upcoming games have brought Bellatelli back into the national team, a, t- a talent 
a great player, but, you know, also a quote unquote, a problem guy. And uh, sometimes you kind of have to work that into the team for the good of the team, or can he, you know, change his game? So it, it's, it's, it's huge to keep that locker room happy. And the one thing that people need to understand about sports is the amount of hours that teams spent together, you know, through travel, airfare, bus rides, training in the locker room, prior to training, in the locker room, after training. Uh, you spend a lot of time with your teammates, and it's always good that when everything is harmonious and things are good because guys want to be around each other. But I've also seen it where it's it's difficult, and and, and if the coach doesn't have a good feel for that, it, it can be uh, not a good situation for team and coach. Sometimes it's just a matter of trying to get them to coexist on the field and, and knowing that off the field they're not going to have much of a relationship, especially at the collegiate level where, you know, people are very observant about who gets what, how it's done, how much playing time they get, what happened in training. You know, years ago, it was you could run a college team with the mentality of a pro team in training. You know, now it's much more uh, in the Olympic sports, it's much more like a collegiate team. You can't really have a professional mentality in certain areas with the players because there's so many of them and they see things differently. And it's it's, it's not a, you know, and our successful teams at UConn, we had everybody pulling in the right direction. We had guys on the same page. We had the, the bottom guy in the roster wanting to make the top guy in the roster better and not worrying about his own playing time. You know, and on some teams that we didn't get as far as we wanted to in the postseason, it often came down that we didn't know about it, but maybe there was a little bit of jealousy in the locker room or negativity in the locker room. And then you try to weed that out in the off at the college level, try to weed it out in the offseason and move the player on. I think also for me, always I sit down my senior class and my captains that they take ownership of the season and their leadership qualities to bring the team together uh, on their own thing. And then if you're fortunate enough to have the means financially and and you're someone that you believe in because anytime you bring an outside person into your group, uh, like a sports psychologist, you better surely make sure that that person is going to bring something great to the table. That's why you're bringing an outside person in to help and, and to bring that to a, a good situation on your team. And, and I've been on teams where we've done that and it's been a plus and, you know, players are always first reluctant when you bring in a sports psychologist right away, they're thinking, what's going on? Why do we need this? What's the purpose of this? But, you know, just like anything, when they see it and sees it as a value, then it's a, it's a good thing to sell. And then everybody buys in just like, you know, uh, as Carly addressed many times in her, in her talk with us, that fitness, it was a big component of her game. And she made sure that her fitness level was at the highest it could be whether it was through the teamwork or even her own individual work to keep her performance at a, at a world-class level. I'll tell you the other thing that's changed over time and at, at Connecticut, we were fortunate that we had, we besides myself, we had three assistants, but then we had a soccer ops person. We had a quality control person and sometimes an assistant quality control personnel, the soccer ops and the two quality controls were full-time volunteers that made money from camp and clinics. But now you're managing them to help get the word out to your team. And as my staff got younger and younger, there's challenges in that. You know, 10 years ago, an assistant, uh, a quality control guy 
would blow the balls up. He knew he'd be an assistant. He knew he'd move up the pecking order. Young people today want instant gratification. They don't want to be doing it. They want the $300 Nike sweatsuit, the $300 sunglasses, and they want to be in the middle of the training sessions. So it's not just, you know, Carly talks about it. We didn't really touch a lot of it with it, but it's also the staff, managing your whole staff at the national team level is different. You've got the best of the best as national team manager and assistants. They're all there, but at college level, where it's not even an MLS level, but where they're not all getting paid, you've got to do a real good job with a sports performance coach and athletic trainer. So the sports performance coach and the athletic trainer did not answer to me directly, but we still had nine people day to day interacting with our players on a variety of levels. And that wasn't even touching on the academic side. So we had to make sure that they, the nine staff were all on the same page with the same March orders. Well, I, I think when you really look at our sport and you compare it to other sports, you're right. You know, the amount of staff you have, how much you have at your access. So as a head coach like yourself, Ray, at, at UConn, you had to really manage that whole entire staff because it all reflects back on you and that, that whole ability to teach. You know, you got young coaches, as you mentioned, that still are learning the game and how to coach the game. Uh, so there's a word that I, I've not acquired that in my coaching, even after 100 years here is patience, you know, uh, because our season is compact, results oriented. You got to get get it done. You don't have a time where it's an eight-month season or a nine-month season. Uh, so the shortness of the season gives you less time. And uh, so, again, patience with each other uh, because, for sure, it's not an overnight thing. Uh, same with players and same with young coaches. They, they're not going to fully grow into being a great coach until – They've done this for a period of time and serving your apprenticeship in a sense as a young coach. I always tell young coaches, when you start, your, your, your knowledge is limited. It's your job to increase your knowledge and learn from the best, and then that helps. But even there, there's not a turnover of 100 jobs that are going to open every weekend or every year. You just have to be patient with where you are and grow and, and, and just wait your turn when the opportunity presents itself. All right, let's get to our interview with Carly Lloyd. She recently retired from a tremendous career in pro soccer with over 300 caps with the U.S. national team. She's an author, teacher, and a motivational speaker. Here's Carly. I think I'm most proud of the compilation of my career, the whole journey, the, the 17 years, because it's filled with ups and downs. It's filled with challenges. It's filled with an insanely hard, hard journey. And every bit of it just made me continue to elevate my game and uh, want to prove everybody wrong. And I think that's, that's the most thing, uh, you know, that I, that I'm proud of is that I just kind of stayed true to myself. Um, I was authentic and I was able to do that from start to finish for 17 years. You know, if I had to highlight anything, I think the obvious one was the 2015 World Cup. Um, but, you know, every single one of them has been a different storyline. You know, 2008 was probably the best team uh, that I've been a part of, you know, and all the other ones have uh, many different storylines as well. Carly, just to piggyback off that, when you got near the end 
Was it hard for you as a competitor to realize it was time for you that you wanted to walk away? How was how was that for you mentally, you know, down the stretch? Uh, no, it wasn't. I mean, I I knew as well as my husband and close family that you know my my vision was to go for four cycles, and that meant playing in the twenty twenty. 20 slash 2021 Olympics in Tokyo. I knew I wanted to end at that point and going into that tournament, you know, I was just going to give it everything I had for the team. Um, we fell short of, of winning a gold medal, unfortunately, but we did walk away with a bronze medal, which was still special. After that, that game, I knew that, that it was it. And it was a pretty easy decision to make. I was tired. I was, you know, I was drained. I had literally just given it everything I had for 17 years. And it was just about the next new chapter, the next beginning for me to live life, to enjoy things that I put on hold for so long. So I'm extremely grateful that I was able to announce my retirement in the middle of August and then go on a, a two, two and a half month uh, farewell tour. Um, not everybody gets that and uh, not everybody gets to dictate when they leave the sport. So it was really special, but yeah, I was, I was ready all around. Yeah. Let's talk about team building. You know, you guys have been in the news recently about the culture and we don't have to go there, but want to kind of get your feedback. Do you need to like your teammates? Do you think to players at high level MLS and uh, NWSL national teams, do they need to get along to have a good culture there? What's your take on the whole competitive side of that? Well, you know, when you, when you see championship teams win and you listen to interviews, you know, post game, post match, the themes you hear is the camaraderie that the team had, the, the collective goal that the team had. And, you know, the fact that, they all were, you know, just a, a close, tight-knit family. It's it's never, you know, hey, we were the most talented team and we were all a bunch of individuals and no one cared about one another. That doesn't win championships. And so for me, uh, the culture on a team, on any team and in any business is super important from the top down. It, it's vital in winning a championship. So it's it's one of those things where not every single player is going to be best friends with one another. Not every single player is going to gel and mesh. You know, everybody has their, their few players that they get along with or, or maybe closer with. Um, but as a whole, the, the key thing is, is, you know, you don't have to be best friends with the person next to you. You just have to respect them as a human being. I think that's the most important thing. And if you can respect each and every player that you play with as a human being, respect their opinions, respect what they stand for, and just smile um, when you step in between those lines, you know, it makes it easier to, to go to battle for your teammates. Um, so I think that that's a, a key thing. You know, it's not a it's not a fairy tale story where every single player is best friends with one another. Um, and I think that's what people have to understand. Well, you've also heard people say, right, all levels of coaching, all sports, winning winning masks a lot of problems too, right? People are not going to step forward and really complain when the team is successful or ultra successful. But obviously when the results don't go the right way, 
sometimes there's there's cracks in the armor. Absolutely. Is it is it healthy? You think to have rivalries within teams at, at the collegiate level, the pro level, the national team level? How do you think that plays? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I think that's what makes it fun. You know, I think for so long, our rivals were Canada, you know, and, and it was a blood bash every time we stepped out onto the field and it makes it fun. You know, it, it makes uh, the competition fun. It means a lot more, you know, when you step out onto that field and, and even the fans, you know, the fans can enjoy it as well. So I definitely think it's, it's part of the game and, and it's important and um, just adds a, another another fun dynamic to the competition. Right. If 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 your answer cannot be Carly Lloyd, who are some of the most competitive teammates that you've played with during your career at any level? Oh, probably Hope Solo for sure. Shannon Box is probably another one. There's been a lot. I mean, I think everybody's competitive in their own in their own nature, in their own way, um, which makes it fun. I mean, I remember our our 5v5 battles that we used to have as a team. We used to run the beep test. Uh, our legs were wobbly, and then we would walk up to the field because uh, we ran it on on turf. We would walk up to the grass field when we were in L.A. and in Carson, and we would have a 5v5 tournament, and uh, everybody's legs would were just shot. But it was – probably the most competitive atmosphere I've ever been a part of, you know, more than any game. And that's what, that's what made our team so successful and so great is, is the competition we had amongst one another. Well, Carly, you know, one thing that people don't understand and, and you dressed upon a little bit, uh, being a former U S coach and an Olympic coach, the times that you spend away from home when you traveled internationally and all those hours, but I read a great article about you in the New Jersey paper about, you know, what you did with your own personal fitness coach back home to keep your fitness up as you got onto your career later in life. But I think people need to know that, you know, it's the hours of pursuit when no one's looking that I think really made you shine as a player, because I thought that your fitness allowed you to be as good a player. And I just like for you to address that. Yeah. You know, I think after college, at Rutgers University, you know, I think I was just sort of riding, you know, my talent all along uh, up until that point. I didn't, I didn't really have someone to sit me down and have a hard conversation with me and, and explain to me that when you get to the national team level, everybody's good. You know, everybody has the it factor. That's why they're there. So in order to make those teams. And in order to stay with those teams, you, you have to do more than everybody else. You have to train harder than everybody else. You have to put the work in. I had to become fit. I had to learn how to become a two-way midfielder. I had the luxury, you know, playing for Glenn Crooks at Rutgers and, and my team to, to just be myself, which was amazing, but I was mostly an attacking player. You know, the defensive responsibilities I didn't really need to have, and I didn't have. So when I got onto the national team scene, it was really important for me to become a two-way midfielder. That's how the game was being played in, in the central spot of the field. So I, I had to learn that fast, which just allowed me to complete my game, you know, allowed me to be more of a complete player. So I, I ran an incredible amount. I did extra running. Um, I trained, you know, all the time. 
I was getting repetition after repetition in with everything, every facet of my game. And when I would play games or I would have training sessions, if I felt that I, I wasn't doing great at something, I would always extract something to be able to go back home and, and improve upon. Um, and that that is the most important thing. I think people don't understand that your bodies are an unbelievable tool. And whatever you tell your mind to do, your body can follow. And um, so often I think people just become okay with, you know, whatever they're doing. Um, but the greats don't become okay. The greats just continue to push. And I just never, ever set limits on myself. I pushed myself. I beat my body up for, you know, 17 years at the professional level, but I also took care of my body. I did all the right things on and off the field. I lived a very healthy life and that allowed me to be able to continue to play. And that's, that's the most important thing. Um, so I just don't think players nowadays train as hard as they should or run as much as they should or do as many repetitions as they should. So it worked for me and I, uh, I learned to become an all around complete player. Well, I appreciate that answer because I, 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 uh, being involved in coaching all my life that what you're just addressed upon, especially college coaches, you expect your players to come back after you finish your spring season and then they're supposed to do this all on their own in the summer. So I just wanted to ask, cause I've heard her speak and I saw her work with you girls. Uh, the lady that was the fitness coach from England, you know, and that role that she played because now we've quote unquote have fitness coaches full time on a, on a payroll. Did she play a good role in helping the success with the women's national team? Yeah. Um, Dawn was with our team for, for a really long time. Um, you know, uh, everybody loved Dawn and I think she was very helpful and instrumental with certain players. I, I did, did things differently. You know, I was more old school. I took the more old school approach. I, I didn't really follow the science. I just ran and did things where I felt I was going to be at the top of my game. And I had to do more because I wasn't a naturally fit player. I had to run more. I had to load up more. I had to do double days. You know, some days I had to do triple days. Um, when I was with the national team, we did our training, but I was always going outside depending on the week and, and doing, you know, two to three extra sessions of running or, or just some touches on the ball because I just needed to do that. And, you know, not trying to knock, you know, what sports science departments are doing, but I, I just think that we're not doing enough. We're not running enough. You're seeing more injuries. You're seeing everything monitored. You're seeing, you know, all of these sports science, um, you know, personnel, uh, limiting people from taking certain amount of shots per day. I mean, I can't tell you in a session, like how many shots I would do. I mean, it, it was, it was in the thousands. My legs are still attached, you know, but if you do, if you do more than, than what a game entails, then when you play a game and you play a season, you know, your body's going to be used to it. But if you're constantly just under that threshold and you're, you're constantly just keeping yourself and limiting yourself throughout the week, oh, you know, we've got this load. We only need to hit another hundred meters of high speed running. Like I, I used a watch to keep my time 
when I ran long distance to keep um, track of the consistent time that I was running, you know, 800s, 1200s, 400s. And I listened to music, you know, that was, that was the, uh, the only electronics that I used. And um, it's, it's no secret why I was playing, you know, near the age of 40 um, and still feeling good. You know, I, I didn't walk away because I was old and, and washed up. I mean, I, I was still one of the most explosive players out there because I just constantly found ways and I just kept going, you know, I didn't start stop throughout my years. I didn't take, you know, three, four months off. The only times I took off were when I had injuries. Um, so I think there's a growing trend of all this sports science, which is good to a point, but you don't want it to start inhibiting athletes, limiting athletes and having them get injured. Um, because I, I just don't think people train hard enough anymore. Carly, amen to that old school. I think I just retired from UConn, and I think what's getting lost with the young player is the mental toughness of having to go through going the extra mile, running the extra 100-meter shuttle. Well, we got to shut him down, shut her down. She's done too much this week. Her numbers aren't good. And and that is, football, to me, is in so many ways when you have talent, it's a game of toughness, mental toughness and physical toughness. Uh, and obviously with the, your national teams, you had the best players at times, you had the best players in the world. But in the end, some of these games come back, come down to really, really. I remember, I think it was, I think it was the Brazil game. I don't remember now, but I was watching it. And it was when Wambach got the head ball goal late in overtime. And that was a game of two great teams. But that was a game of toughness, mental toughness, physical toughness. And I think it's getting lost. I think you're right, you know putting on music and running on your own or running to your drop or taking 275 shots today and 310 tomorrow. Kids have meltdowns. And I think it's affecting our ability to develop some top players. Oh, it is. I mean, it's, I've seen it, you know, I've seen, like I, I said to you before, you know, we, we used to run the beep test and then we used to walk up and our legs were wobbly and we would play five V five and some players would be, you know, falling on the ground and, but you're still you're still breeding that mental toughness to push through even though you're tired. And um, you know, I've 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 seen it because everyone wants to kind of come up with the next best thing, you know, oh, what are they doing in England? We're gonna follow here, we're gonna do this, we're gonna do that, we're gonna, you know, have these 30-minute warm-ups. And, you know, I don't warm up. I mean, I I take a jog around the field get some touches on the ball and and I'm golden. But, you know, we've got these 30 minute warmups, you're doing all this dynamic stuff and you just, you don't need it. Your body gets used to whatever you put it through. And, um, you know, for me, the mental toughness part was the biggest thing within my game. And that is because I got on the line. I ran 1200s, 800s, 400s. I ran hill sprints. I ran long distance running. And it was just me. I didn't run with people. I didn't like to run with people, in fact, you know, and, and now it's kind of like, oh, you can get your fitness through the ball. No, you can't. You got to get on the line. You got to run and you got to have your legs burn and you've got to have your, your, your breathing, you know, breathing heavy um, so you can push through. It's it's simple, it, you know. I'm all about the old school approach, and 
always have been, always will be. Um, and I'd like to go back to that to some degree. I was fortunate. I played for an icon at Southern Connecticut named Bob the Cranian. I was talking early 80s. Preseason was three two-hour sessions a day. When I went to UConn, I coached at Southern for a while. Then I went to UConn. We were doing three. They were fine with it. My last year or two there, we would try to do a double session every third day, and they would look at me like I'm from Mars. My legs are tight. My legs are this. And I'd be like, well, how do you think your legs are going to feel in the NCAA tournament in the second overtime in the 115th minute with everything you've worked for for four years on the line? Oh, yeah. And there's and there's more injuries, you know? Like, I, I, there's way more injuries now. And I'm like, how are people not seeing this and understanding it? I mean, there's there's players on the national team that are, you know, young. And the amount of injuries that some of them have, it's like one after another. You know, they'll have a good spell for a little bit and then they'll get injured again. It's crazy to me, and and uh, you know, yeah, it's uh, it's got to change, in my opinion. I mean, I could run, I could run a team through a, a preseason, and they'd be the fittest team ever. It's not, it's not rocket science, <laughs> coach. I I just think you know because you're talking to two old school guys uh, from Long Island, New York, that you know more was better not less. And, uh, you know, whether, you know, you played basketball or you played soccer, lacrosse, whatever, uh, the coaches really made it tough for you. And I think part of that was what you addressed the mental side as well. But, you know, the, the reason I asked that thing about sports, I, I left the pro game and I don't coach at the national level anymore. I I'm a, I'm a one man show here at, at my school right here at university of Redlands. We're division three. I mean, I have one assistant coach. That's it. And my guys, you know, understand that, you know, you could pay me now or you could pay me later. You know, in other words, if you do your work in the summer, preseason will be a little more tolerable. If you don't, you're going to be ice basting it every day. Uh, so I, I really thank you for that because um, I knew that was your MO. And I, I think it's important that young players hear you, older players hear you. And, um, you know, the challenge that you have now is what Coach Reed is going through now. Uh, okay, you, you've had all this for a long, long time, and now uh, your life changes a little bit, you know. Uh, no more games to have to train and play for. So my question to you now is that now that you have this added time, what do you plan to do with it? Yeah, I'm actually uh, really busy. You know, I'll, I'll definitely stay involved uh, with Gotham FC in some capacity and – you know, we'll be staying involved in the game. I mean, I'm not going to be someone who who just leaves the game uh, on the field and then, you know, you never hear hear about or, or see. So, you know, things with FIFA, Men's, Women's World Cup, I'm sure there'll be things with U.S. soccer down the road. But, you know, it's, it, it's, definitely, it's definitely vital because I do feel my story, my experiences can help the next generation. And I'm not going to help everybody, but if there's one or two players that, you know, I can really make a difference – uh, in their lives. Like that's, that's for me is what it's all about. So uh, I'm still hosting my own CL 10 clinics and kind of taking them all around. Yeah. I mean, whatever opportunities continue to come, I'm, I'm here and hopefully can, can help uh, play a role in continuing to grow the game. Carly, along that vein, if eight years from now you were the president, you were soccer, <laughs> what would you change to help our national team programs? You know, I, I think the biggest thing is, is creating a, a mindset and a, and a 
winning mentality with these teams, the important core values of life, you know, of competing against yourself, working extremely hard, um, using failures as, as feedback and opportunity. I mean, it's a lot, you know, you have to, you'd have to change a lot. I think kids don't play enough. They don't have the freedom to, to practice on their own. You know, like you said, parents are signing these kids up for strength coaches at age 11, 12. You don't need it. You know, just play. Just play. You're going to build muscle that way. You're actually going to become less risky for, for injury. Um, and then as you get older, you know, you can figure out the, the the strength component that you need. But, you know, kids, they don't play enough. They don't play, play freely enough. They don't try different things. Um, they're not practicing enough on their own. And and so, yeah, I think I would kind of change change the mindset a little bit there. I would definitely put them all through a specific running program. Start them young so that they become mentally tough and you go all the way up and it, it'll be a breeze. I mean, I was someone who it was so hard to leave my house to go out and run. I hated running. I was not good at running, but I grew to love it because you just see the benefits of it. Um, you see how much it, it, it helps. And, you know, I, I just look back on my career and if I listened to people putting limits on me and telling me I'm doing too much, I'm going to burn out, you know, why are you doing that type of running? I wouldn't have played for this long. So, um, I would definitely, I would definitely put them through a, a gruesome running program. Well, I know we appreciate your time and the way I'd like to end it is I hear that you're the things you're saying that you're involved. How can people, you know, follow that, what you're doing and, and be a part of it. I know you mentioned the Dallas clinic, the New Jersey clinic. Uh, I think that, which is all brilliant. So is there any way to be able to follow Carly Lloyd and what she's doing? Yeah. My website, carlylloyd.com, my uh, social media channels, you know, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all of that. Um, try to keep everyone, you know, updated, but I've got some things coming up in the pipeline. I can't really announce them just yet, but yeah, some exciting stuff and just looking forward to, you know, helping to continue to grow this beautiful game. Carly, thank you very much for that. We know how busy you are. Thank you for taking time and, and good luck in all your endeavors. We really appreciate you being on. Yeah, no problem. Great chatting with you guys. Thanks for listening for the love of the game. If you like this show, please give us a rating and a review. Share this with all the social medias and tell your friends. This podcast was produced by Earfluence, and I'm Ralph Perez. And I'm Ray Reed, and we'll talk to you again soon on For the Love of the Game.